Welcome to Men in Charge. I'm Tony Flynn. And I'm Kevin Decker. And uh, another entry in our self-congratulatory season 10. Today's episode is entitled, You've Smelled Our T-Shirts, Now Buy Our Cologne. And that sounds distasteful because it is. Oh, yeah. We're not going to dwell that long on this except to point out that a little more money flung our way into the Tony and Kevin Retirement Fund. Tony, there's plenty of blame to spread around here. In the studio with us today, writer and performer Ann Porter voted for that. I yeah. thought right? it was a secret ballot. Oh. Well, except we do check the name, <laughs> yeah. and if it says Ann on the bottom of the ballot, uh, right. that's a giveaway. Right. Shoot, I should have known that. Yeah, you, you, shouldn't have have, you shouldn't have voted for that title. Tony, we don't have a lot of time to talk about why people should buy our cologne, although the official men in charge cologne is entitled Marmot Musk. Again, there's a reason for our cologne, the t-shirts. Right. First up, we have the second in the crowd-pleasing series, European Complainers. What's the story there, Kevin? Well, today, uh, the European Complainers, instead of solving problems, will be simply bitching about them. Today, it's pork steaks. Where do they come from? And, of course, we will be discussing the role of Teddy Roosevelt and his pork steak shenanigans. After that, we have the fifth in the long but maybe too long-running series, a man called Bambi. I'm going to stop talking because the whole Bambi thing is confusing and frustrating both to me, the writer, and to the listeners. I will say it's great, though, to finally have a mob boss, Mr. Giuliani, not based on any real person. No, no, no. Uh, entering into the saga. He does have to wipe the hair dye off his forehead, <laughs> he though. Does. And then after that, a new character in a new scenario written by you, Tony, Bruno Calamari, Norwegian political operative. What's that about? Well... When you've been through the best academic sequence at Lower Heights Community College, you find yourself unemployed. And so this is an enterprising, uh, middle-aged, <laughs> self-styled Norwegian political operative who has a plan for a long-running character. In fact, it serves as a prequel to all of the Sheriff Coors episodes we've enjoyed thus far. Indeed. Every month, at a secret location somewhere in the last Howard Johnson's motel in Cincinnati, USA, the members of an elite international organization convene from remote corners of the state of Ohio to debate and discuss the most crucial contemporary problems facing the rest of the world. Of course, the problems they discuss are always the various and sundry new threats posed by the United States of America. Yes, the USA. It's a rogue state few have heard of, but one that encourages its increasingly geriatric presidents to hold tightly onto a railing or a nearby general while ascending steps or descending a ramp with a 4.8 degree slope. Call to order! Call to order! She is Adrienne Zlotti, Bohemian architect, creator of installation art known and loved across the eastern upper Midwest, such as Cedars Falling on Snow and gigantic Frank Lloyd Wright skeleton. Down with all forms of hegemonically globalized corporate art. Up with the Friends Reunion! 
They are the unwashed existentialists Jacques de temps en temps, interim vice president of angst assessment at the University of Tampa, and Hans Flueger, professor of critical Disney studies at Liberty University, a faculty position he serves in only ironically. Together they are the European Complainers Society. Today's topic of discussion at the European Complainer Society is pork sticks. What were they thinking? By the word say, we can only mean the misguided and almost intentionally diabetic hordes of American Midwesterners. We fly over their states for a reason. Hans and Jacques, have either of you ever seen a pork stick, much less eaten one? Oh, like the mysterious liger, part tiger, part llama, of deepest Peru. The pork steak remains known to us only through blurred pictures and pages of coloring books sponsored by the Iowa State Pork Council. If that is their real name. One must imagine the pork steak charred from too much time sitting on the Americans' neolithic outdoor fire barrels to be a grisly mass of porcine bodily detritus. Quel dégueulasse. Now, to be fair, I have often utilized the steak cut of various animals in my post-revolutionary public art installations. These are firm and often very regular in cut and decay in the fresh air much less quickly than, for example, internal organs. However, I do not even believe that it is possible to produce a steak cut from a pig. Leave it to the American Midwesterners with their I have fallen and can't get up. Or with their clap on, clap off with the clapper. With their beer can chicken. And of course, the perennial bumper sticker, gas, ass or grass, <laughs> nobody rides for free. Ah, too bad, Hans. You hitchhiked here, and your ride just realized that they let you ride for free. I don't know who it could be. Come in. Ah, it is apparently room service, served by two American women whose hair peroxide quotient is very impressive. If by impressive, one means depressive. Hi, I'm Tabitha. And I'm Tegan. And we're the daughters in the law offices of Richard J. Garlic and Daughters radio commercials. Maybe you've heard of us? Oh, we do not listen to radio, young woman. Particularly so-called public radio, which perhaps should be called big public radio due to the inordinate amount of pressure it exerts on the capitalist media sphere. However, Jacques, I continue to maintain that we should call the latter the, quote, capitalist media irregular polygon, unquote, a form with an indeterminate number of sides, a lack of a fixed name, and no center. Nonetheless, we agree on the threat of big public radio. Anyway, uh, Tegan and I were just listening to your little tet a tet about pork steaks on behalf of the Iowa State Pork Council. Which, which we and our father, R- Richard J. Garlic, represent. Yes, thanks, Tegan. We'd like to present an opposing argument in favor of the pork steak. Tegan, will you bring in the portable grill? Right away, sis. 
Ah, the smell. How do Americans live with such a charnel reek? Much less party amid such a reek. Much better to boil than brine one's main course, the authentic Magyar way. Yuck! Okay, here we go. Uh, you might want to try and at least hold these note cards down below your face, honey. Like many other distinctively American foods... Ha! Rich America! Or rather, who's America? Already we see the underlying structure of patriot capitalist hegemony raise its ugly little bald head. Hey, give Tegan a chance, fellas. Like many other distinctively American foods, the ice cream cone, the hot dog, cotton candy, and, and corn nuts, the pork steak originated in that most patriotic and classic of American context, the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Wasn't this the World Fairs kicked off by your president, T.R. Teddy Roosevelt, who once mistook Booker T. Washington for a waiter at a dinner he was having with the famous African-American educator and orator, Booker T. Washington? Was that before or after he enjoyed his first pork steak? <laughs> oh, don't pay any attention to them, Tegan, honey. They don't even eat white bread. <clears throat> at the fair, the food entrepreneur, Algis Y. Backey, was selling lean cuts of ham to hungry attendees. He would cook them for an extra three cents. When he suddenly realized that he had run out of his main product and had only what he called pork course, the fatty and gristly meat surrounding the joints at the pig's four haunches. Now listen carefully, my European complainer friends. Here is where Teddy Roosevelt becomes attracted by the scent and comes to investigate. <laughs> Realizing that he didn't have the processing equipment to turn the pork course, plus sawdust and whichever insects happened to be in the air at the time, into hot dogs, Backy sliced the pork cores laterally using a very sharp knife into what he called the Delmonico Oinker, and what we now call the pork steak, and made many fairgoers happy. He decided to charge an extra five cents if he wanted them cooked. Wonderful, Tegan. You're nearly ready to go up in front of a real judge. Hey, why aren't y'all clapping? She made her case. Hope I made Dad proud. Ah, I remain unconvinced. And I do not want to try any of these virulently disgusting demonical oinkers that you brought today. We can smother them in barbecue sauce. Ah, the ubiquitous ketchup solution to all execrable American cooking. <laughs> also, the smoke from your portable grill kiosk seems to be filling the room. All right, they're being really unfair, Tegan. I'm calling Dad on the speed dial. Dad? Uh, yeah, Tegan did great, but they're not buying it. Put you on speaker? Okay. All right, you unwashed artsy Europeans. This is Richard J. Garlic, and I'm going to be suing you on behalf of the Iowa State Pork Council for pork steak defamation in the finest British courts of law. Listener, that's all the time we have now for the European Complainers Society. Tune in next time when we'll learn why the Dutch put the into the name of the old city that was just called Hague, just to prove a point. 
And now it's time once again for A Man Called Bambi. This man, who is wandering through Manhattan one October evening in 1948 in an ill-fitting trench coat with the name tag Bambi stitched over the pocket, is running from something. Or to something. The narrative remains obscure on these points, and we're already at part five. As you'd better have remembered from last time, Bambi and Michael the bartender slash novelist fled a train that was inexplicably chasing them by boarding it. On the train, they were intimidated by a surly teenager. Not much of an episode, really. But... Back at the spittoon, the bar that employs Michael, the bartender slash novelist, as a bartender, not as a novelist, the voiceover versions of Bambi and Michael remain. As we return to the spittoon, voiceover Michael has just lifted the battered voiceover Bambi to his feet. I lifted Mr. Bambi to his feet so that he could lean comfortably against the wall. I wondered about calling him a cab, but since I could only narrate events, how could I talk to a dispatcher on the phone? Well, I had to try something. I dialed the cab company on the phone behind the bar. It rang. Somebody answered at the other end. Hello, this is the wee hours cab company. Where he needs to be picked up. I couldn't respond to the dispatcher directly. I could only narrate. What? What's that? You gonna narrate something? This wasn't going well. I somehow had to get him to understand that he had to get here to the spittoon for a fare. Who? Who are you talking to, lady? Look, I got other calls. I suddenly thought that if I insulted the dispatcher, he wouldn't hang up. But how? What if I kept it hypothetical? What if, for instance, the dispatcher was as dumb as a stick, as pathetic as a fish flopping on the dock? Too stupid to know that he needed to send a cab to the spittoon right away. Are you having this conversation with yourself? Get off the phone so as you can do that in private. Semi-deliberately, I had leaned away from the wall and onto the air in front of me. The air's grip was mighty loose, and it let go of me immediately. I hit the floor, for the same reason we climb a mountain. Because it was there. I lay on the floor moaning convincingly, and hoped the bartender-slash-novelist would lift me up again. She had good hands. I cursed audibly when Mr. Bambi fell to the floor again, but ironically, no one heard me, because it was all hearsay, second-hand. He lay there moaning, unconvincingly. Hey, lady, hang up already. Other calls will be coming in. Because this was 1948 and I hadn't hung up, the line to the dispatcher was still open. That's how phones worked back then. Too bad for the dispatcher. I was going to keep him on the line until I figured out a way to get him to send a cab. The bartender slash novelist stared down at me with an intensified lack of interest, which hurt as much as my bruises. I moaned louder, even more sincerely, and flooded my eyelashes to look all vulnerable. I think she bought it, because she reached down, grabbed me by my ankles, and dragged me behind the bar, where I guess she thought we'd have more privacy. I didn't buy his moaning and fluttering eyelashes bit for more than ten, uh, maybe thirty seconds, and then I dragged him behind the bar to get him out of the way. 
Then I heard footsteps and a voice. I would have recognized it if I'd heard it before, but I hadn't, so I didn't. Hey there, hot stuff. Oh, the voice's owner was decidedly unprepossessing, as we aspiring novelists like to say. He'd given up on having a neck, and black hair dye was running down his face like a sewer leak. I knew who he was after all. Mr. Giuliani. Once you're done talking to yourself, toots, how about a drink? And some answers. From my cozy spot in a pool of beer drippings behind the bar, I heard Mr. Giuliani's sound effect his way into the bar with footstep noises. And then, his voice, like ants were crawling around in his throat. My evening was continuing to deteriorate. But, if he didn't look behind the bar, I'd be okay. Since I wasn't done talking to myself, and maybe never would be the way my night was going, I didn't get Mr. Giuliani a drink. I just stared at him, hoping he'd lose interest and find some other bar to drip on. Hey, you, toots. I am the sort of mafia boss what is gentle and kind, but I am still a mafia boss, one of considerable local renown. So a drink, answers, or shall I become unpleasant? I was growing progressively more disappointed with my situation, by which I really mean I was starting to panic. I was hoping, mighty hopefully, that she remembered that as an aspiring novelist, she could narrate him away from the bar. Staring blankly wasn't getting me anywhere, and Mr. Giuliani's hair dye drip was starting to dry on the bar. But then, unaccountably, I remembered that I'd been able to narrate Mr. Giuliani's goons, Aiden and Largo, into walking away. It was worth a try. Losing interest, I guess, Mr. Giuliani wandered away from the bar, sat down, and stared at the wall. I don't know what you just did, toots, but you won't get away with it. That's all the time we have now for A Man Called Bambi. Tune in again next time when we'll hear the dispatcher say, Since you won't get off the line, lady, maybe I should tell you about my day. See how you like it. I woke up this morning a little constipated. How do you like that detail? Shall I go on? You're enjoying the audio bromide, Men in Charge. And now it's time for Bruno Calamari, Norwegian political operative. Bruno Calamari, 48-year-old recent graduate of Lower Heights Community College's program in political science and convenience store management, is launching a new career in marketing strategies for political campaigns. His efforts to secure a campaign position by wearing a sandwich board at the mall, however, have thus far been unsuccessful. Come on, announcer, it's only been a week. People! Any of you planning to run for office? Need a strategy? Opposition research? I'm your man, Bruno Calamari. That's Bruno with a B, Calamari with a C. Social media trolling, robocalls, push polling. That's my brand. Are you Bruno Calamari? Maybe. Who wants to know? Don't get belligerent with me, little mister. Check out the badge. I just see the name tag, Coors. Is that supposed to mean something to me? 
I'm mall security officer, second class cores. There have been complaints about someone named uh, Bruno Calamari. You were just now shouting that you were Bruno Calamari. So I'm asking you, are you Bruno Calamari? That's nothing I'm going to admit to. Now please go away and allow me to exercise my constitutional right to shout at people in public places. Uh, Sorry, little mister, but you'll just have to shout in public in some quiet place where nobody can hear you. Now, hands behind your back. Zip ties? You're putting me in zip ties? Budget cuts. Couldn't afford the new handcuffs, so we're stuck with the zip ties. (laughs) Damn things. What's the problem here? It's getting very difficult to take you seriously, second-class Coors. So, what do you mean by that? Never mind, you're just... uh, You take them. What? Just hold on to the zip ties, but keep your hands behind your back as if they're secured. I don't want my authority to seem undermined in the eyes of the onlookers. If I play along with this charade of yours, this pathetic simulation of an arrest... Can I come back in a few minutes and push my brand as a political operative? Oh, all right. But don't be so noisy next time. Okay, it's a deal. But you'll have to bring my sandwich board along with us. Well, crap. Okay. What does this damn sandwich board say anyways? So you're a non-reader, eh, second-class Coors? More like a don't-want-to-bother-reading-your-damn-sandwich-board. What's it say already? It says that I can elect anyone to any public office they want. Locally. Ever actually pull that off? Well, after I've had a chance to run a few campaigns, I'll absolutely be able to say yes. In fact, I'm so good, I could even get you elected sheriff. Sheriff, huh? (laughs) Sheriff Coors, I like the sound of that. Unbeknownst to either Bruno Calamari or Mall Security Officer Second Class Coors, that exchange had been overheard by snake-like investigative reporter Angelina Van O'Reilly. I overheard that. I know, I just said it. I mean, I also overheard you calling me snake-like. I'll get you for that, announcer. Angelina Van O'Reilly, oversensitive and yet still snake-like investigative reporter, stalked off like an angry bag of lemons in search of more vodka. We now return to Mall Security Officer Second Class Coors and Bruno Calamari as they enter a nondescript back room in the mall where Coors speaks suspected shoplifters for some reason until he releases them for some reason. Hey there, second-class cores. I see you still haven't figured out the zip ties. You know I'm sensitive on that topic, Melanie. And I still don't get why y'all laugh when you call me second-class cores. That's not my full title, you know. Sure, whatever. And is this my replacement? Can I go now? And why did you bring me a sandwich board when I asked you to bring me a sandwich? God, but you're overpaid. And who are you? Bruno Calamari. Norwegian political operative. He's gonna run me for sheriff, Melanie. Mm, You're both insane. And Bruno, you have a weirder title than second-class cores. I'm out of here. Not so fast, Melanie. It's actually a terrific idea. Look at him. Confused, amiable, easily led, a man of the local people. And these days, voters are suspicious of politicians who are smarter than they are. Hmm, can't argue with any of that, I guess. 
and you can strike it rich running a campaign. You can? Damned right. And I'll need a down payment, Coors. Do you need staffers for this campaign, Bruno? You mean you? Do you live here in the county? I live here at the mall. Do you have a problem with that? What's your background? What do you do for a living? I shoplift. Do you have a problem with that? You might be the very person I might be looking for. Whoa, this is all happening way too fast. I don't understand. Fast is how you win elections, Coors. Now, I'll need that down payment check for $2,000. Whoa, again. That's a lot of money for a mall security officer. Well, I don't work for free, but your thinking is all backward. Think of how much money you'll be getting as sheriff. How much exactly? A lot. Anyway, being forward-thinking means basing your spending on your future earnings. Uh, uh, Well... Maybe. Here you go, Bruno. Uh, as the staffer, shouldn't I take care of that check? No, but I like your style, Melanie. We now shift the action to the office of Sheriff Hilda Spondy. Angelina Van O'Reilly bursts into the reception area. I need to see Sheriff Spondy right away. Sheriff Spondy's very busy right now. Being the sheriff and everything. Never mind any of that. I'm Angelina Van O'Reilly, investigative reporter. (gasps) I love your work. It's so snake-like. I'll get you for that. Angelina, what the hell do you mean barging in like this? What I mean is, have a seat. What can I do for you? I love your shoes. Well, you do have an eye for shoes. But that's not why I'm here, Sheriff. I just learned that you've picked up a serious challenger in the upcoming election. What? Who? My donors from Commanding Heights assured me that Lower Heights was in the bag and that removing the voting machines from the precincts in Pansy Hollow, where I tend to arrest people, should dampen turnout enough there for me to skate to re-election. <laughs> Commanding Heights donors could easily turn on you. They think you're moving too slowly on setting up the child labor force camp. And this challenger is serious. Some mall security officer. Second class, I think. I didn't catch his name. Sounds like a nobody. But he's a new nobody. And even a quick glance at him reveals all. Confused. Amiable. Easily led. A man of the local people. And these days, voters are suspicious of politicians who are smarter than they are. Damn, I see where you're going with this. That's all the time we have now for Bruno Calamari, Norwegian political operative. Tune in again next time when we'll hear this exchange between Bruno and Mall Security Officer Second Class Coors. Wait, don't go yet. You said you'd show me how to put on the zip ties. All right, all right. Put your arm on the chair and watch carefully. The tie goes around your arm and the chair arm. The tip goes through the slot and then you just tug. Ow! Hey, nice work. Now how do I get myself loose? Sheesh. You just asked how to put on the zip ties, not take them off. Sorry. We're off now to deposit this check at the bank. When Melanie and I get back for another down payment, I'm sure we'll figure out a way to cut you loose. 
Kevin, it's time to thank the cast and even the writers in spite of their work today. I'm going to do the writers first. Uh, the writers we're thanking for this episode are Kevin Decker and Tony Flynn. And I'm going to thank the cast. Jody Stewart-Strobel, Nisha Schramm, Sarah O'Hare, Kevin Decker, Tony Flynn, Maureen Hager, Steve Lloyd, Ann Porter, Ryan Weldon, and Nancy Roth. We'd like to thank the Bad Plus for our theme song. We also need to thank the three who may be more than three, depending upon their uh, emanations of the day. Carrie Boyce, Vern Windham, Nisha Schramm, Nancy Roth, and the only man who leans into the wind indoors. Brian Lindsay.